0: You know, the reason I, they like reading my stuff is that I've always got real-life examples to prove what I'm saying. There's a lot of good people that listen to this podcast. You know, other than God and my family, deer hunting would be next in line on my list of priorities. From the bottom of our hearts, it's it's just fantastic and awesome to, uh, to have the support that you guys are getting. People ask me about expandable broadheads and love swings. <laughs> <laughs> Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osio Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations. World-class whitetails. Well, Welcome, everyone,
1: to the Chasing Giants podcast with Don Higgins and Terry Peer, brought to you by Ossio Camo um this is episode 115 Don it is May 1st it's already
0: May yeah it uh food plot season is here we just need for it to dry up a little bit so I can start planting
1: yeah the um um, I actually tilled the garden uh, gardens today and uh but we've had a we've had a good bit of rain but that sun came out late yesterday early today with a with a stiff wind so it dried a lot of our fields out, so I'm sure that a bunch of people are going to be planting here in the next two weeks.
0: Yeah, I did get some switchgrass planted this past week and uh, some miscanthus, um, but my food pots are still just a little bit wet and uh, I don't want to get in too big a hurry and and work you know soil that's too wet or you'll end up with clods that are hard as concrete, so it's better to wait for the soil conditions to be right and I'm hoping this week that happens. Yep. Um, I, uh, I mentioned last week on the
1: podcast that there was the possibility of me, uh, chasing an urban buck this week. Um, I, I did get a chance to take a little small sprayer mixed with a herbicide concoction and, and, uh, go through a briar patch and knock some weeds down. So I got a, uh, entrance into the backside of a, uh, a tree probably about 25 feet away from an old pole barn. So, um we're we're starting to lay the groundwork in case this, uh, this buck something I want to chase this year
0: well that sounds familiar because I spent uh, several days this week spraying paths past my stands these paths are for, not for me to enter the stand but for the deer to pass within range yeah and, and I went through two complete garden sprayers full of spray I forget how many stands I visited but you know at least six or eight and uh, you know it's it's that time of the year that uh, you need to get those stands ready it's going to be green here in a hurry probably already is green down where you're at yep and, uh, so i mean it's time to have the stands ready and you know a lot of the stands that i'm getting ready i'm not even sure there's going to be a shooter there this fall but I, I would rather get it ready and not have a shooter there than to have a shooter show up and uh my stands aren't ready and i got to go in and late summer early fall and, and get them ready so the element of surprise is huge when it comes to chasing giants and uh, I I just try to prepare ahead of time as much as I possibly can
1: well in this segment of the podcast we usually are just talking about updates about what we're doing not really giving tips but I really want to ask a couple questions about um, when you said you were spraying a herbicide but for the deer path, we've talked about this, but we have so many new listeners that have just started uh, listening in the last couple months. Uh, Give us the quick reason of why uh, possibly going in and using a herbicide to funnel the deer through tall grass, brush, that type of thing versus a mode path or some other strategy.
0: Well, over the years, I can think of three specific mature bucks that refused to follow a mowed path in daylight and uh, Smokey was one of those. Um, So you know it took three bucks for me to finally catch on but uh, with Smokey it was like okay I'm done mowing paths on my farm because he would cross the path but he would never follow the path. So uh, I came up with the idea that I'd start using a garden sprayer with the herbicide and instead of mowing, you know, a six foot or five foot wide, whatever your mower is, path, I would just spray, you know, the the width of the spray pattern. And so I'm spraying about a 12 to 18 inch wide path through weeds, brush, whatever. And uh, I'm using the, both a contact herbicide like glyphosate, but I'm also putting a residual in there, um, and that residual will prevent future weeds and so a lot of times that when I spray a path it'll stay open for two years if I use enough residual and uh, because you just it just stays in that soil and you know if you're hunting on the edge of a weed field or a tall grass field or whatever you can lead those deer right past your stand within 20 yards or wherever you want them um, with that sprayed path they'll follow it I mean you can change their pattern and uh, it's worked like a charm for me in multiple locations multiple properties. And so this time of the year, and actually I'm a little bit early, I, I typically do this around, say, Memorial Day weekend when the, the growth is up there good. But uh, um, I've just had some time this week as it's been too wet to do food plot work. So I'm getting in a little bit early and kind of reversing the order that I would typically do these things in. Um, but I'm going in and I'm spraying those paths. And uh, a lot. Of, some of them are paths that have been sprayed in the past, but uh, that residual herbicide starting to wear off, so I'm re-spraying them. And then so others are brand new locations, you know, where I've got a new stand, and I want to make sure those deer tr- pass my stand within range. Uh, just another thing you can do to take a good stand and make it a great stand.
1: So uh you know, we've talked multiple times about there's just something about uh, deer liking something of structure up tight to them, um, even when we have a transition between a bean and a corn field or clover and a bean field that height transition they tend to work that where there's structure along one edge of them pretty tight for some reason and uh, this this kind of strategy of using a herbicide keeps your path very narrow but by the time the deer start using that they tromp it down so much so um, if you have a stand location that is right up against tall brush or grass um, you think about this as a strategy uh, here in the late spring early summer going in and spraying that because if you're especially if you're having problems getting the deer coming out at 50 60 70 yards and you want to try to bring them in closer uh, and you can't drop trees or put a fence with a gap in it or anything like that this might be a very good way to to get them within bow range where you need them
0: yeah i should probably you know throw out there terry that some bucks will follow a mode path absolutely no doubt about it i've seen plenty of them that would without hesitation but occasionally you get that buck that, like you mentioned, he wants to have some brush or something rubbing against his side. He don't wanna feel like he's standing in the wide open, exposed. Um, if he can feel that brush um, against his side, um, he's way more comfortable and he's more likely to do it in daylight than he is to expose himself on a mode path. But again, it's it's an individual thing. Some bucks will be fine with that mode path, but the way I look at it is if I can get the really tough buck, to follow that path those ones that are going to follow the mode path they're going to use it too there's no doubt about right. it it's going to be the path of least resistance and they're going to use it but those ones that would um, refrain from using the mode path will get them as well so it kind of ups our odds that the buck we're after will follow that path
1: right um, we've, we've been on a lot of properties together over the years and I remember going to one property with you that had this strategy um, on it and from the from the timber out to where you wanted to hunt was this taller grassy area and there was just nothing there that we could really funnel and we were really limited on the number of trees that we could get a stand in so you use this strategy to basically create that corridor through that grass to where it was in bow range where it came out because if we would have gone in and hung that stand on the edge of the timber we would have had the wrong wind and not been quite in the right position to, to catch that buck where we needed to. So, um, I don't know. I mean, if, if people that are listening that are real, uh, real up to date in uh, public land, I don't know if you can use herbicide on public land like this or not. Um, I know a lot of places you can't cut trees and we get people all the time saying they have a lease or they have a permission property where you can't cut a tree down. Um, you know it might be just another strategy where you don't have equipment or you're not able to drop trees or build structure um, just to get that funnel I mean it's as simple as that so uh, make sure you're checking the laws and regulations where you're at but uh, a small little Walmart garden sprayer and uh, some herbicide is not that expensive well the herbicide's expensive this year but it's cheaper it's cheaper than renting equipment and going in so what else did you get done besides uh spraying those paths did you get any work done on public
0: uh, you know i, I went and scouted another piece of public yesterday and uh found a potential a, a really good stand site it's just a matter of if is there going to be a shooter buck there um a ravine comes up out of a bottom and really bottlenecks and creates a nice funnel and it just so happens that that funnel is right behind someone's house it's right on the the property line between public and private and uh it it doesn't appear there's been any hunting pressure i mean when i go in on public i'm looking for other hunters as much as anything right and i I seen absolutely zero sign of other hunters no tree stands uh i couldn't find a branch that had been cut looked in all the obvious spots where you would think a a hunter would be as well as just everywhere i went and uh it just it, it looks like one of those little out of the way places that uh it's so obvious that nobody would hunt it, you know, it's right behind this house, but it's a great pinch point. And I'll have a camera in there this year. I, I won't get a stand site uh, ready just because the odds that there'll be a shooter there are, are not that good, but I will definitely have a camera watching that, uh, that pinch point this fall and see what passes through there. Interesting.
1: Um yeah um, as far as my week went, um I, I tell you what, don i'm I am so blessed. you know it's it's amazing that um we have this much support, and um I made a bet with somebody, a buddy of mine, for five dollars that I would receive over a hundred private messages and emails telling me how big of an idiot I was for plowing a field. so I actually <laughs> kept I actually kept count of it this week. I got a hundred and eighty two private messages or emails with articles and YouTube videos about how we shouldn't plow fields anymore. So I don't know how much more a blessed man can be than to have all these people that uh want to help me so bad. So I'm being just Uh, a little I'm
0: being a little snarky. Yeah. (laughs) You you post anything on the internet and somebody's gonna disagree with you. It
1: doesn't
0: matter you know what it is. You can say the earth is round and and somebody's gonna disagree with you on the internet and
1: yeah
0: um that, that's just the day we live in
1: <laughs> I told uh, I told my buddy when I won the bet for five bucks I said this week I'm going to talk about wiping my butt so everybody can tell me how I'm doing it wrong and um you know what toilet paper I need to be using instead but no in all seriousness um uh, I get a, I I just have a little fun with it it's fine Um, I did have a really good opportunity this week. I was out of town most of the week, uh, with my day job up at the Indianapolis motor speedway. Um, I don't talk about my day job too much, but part of my responsibility is actually working with our, uh, corporate sponsorships with NASCAR and IndyCar through team Penske. So, uh, Pinsky now owns the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, so we had a sponsor summit this week, and there was over 200 people there, which are the brightest minds in marketing and branding from all over the world. That we come together and figure out how to, um, you know, new ideas or best ways that we can leverage uh, promotional activities with motorsports for our brands and for our business-to-business opportunities. And you know, it's 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 a very um, humbling um experience to be in the room with executive vice presidents of companies like hitachi and verizon and chevrolet and you know all these big huge shell pens oil um all these big huge companies with their brightest and best marketing people and i'm somehow in the middle of them for some odd reason i haven't figured out yet but uh You know we had a really really good two and two three days with some breakouts about influence marketing and how that's um, um, really taken over what most companies are doing with their marketing budget Um, we talked a lot about the social media trends with how things um, and algorithms and um, things are working Um, the topic of what you say in your room with your cell phone in your pocket suddenly coming up on your uh, recommended searches. Uh, We talked a lot about that. Um, um, The most interesting thing that was really hard to get my mind wrapped around is NFTs, which um, um, is being adopted in the um, music and the sports arena. It's basically digital autographs or digital memorabilia. So instead of buying a baseball card that's signed, you buy a digital picture of uh, a celebrity but um that's just basically the license plate and the SKU number to real life experiences and how that's going to relate to different branding opportunities but um you know it's such a such a humbling experience um you know we we talk about best practices and they even put one of my small little projects up on the screen and talked about it so that was kind of cool to be recognized in front of all those people um, I guess the highlight of my week was getting to meet, um, uh, a lady who was one of the keynote speakers. Um, her name was, uh, Nicole Mala. I'm going to say this wrong. Malish Mal Malishotsky, I believe I'm going to remember that wrong, but she was a 30 year air force fighter pilot. And the first female to ever uh, be the Thunderbirds pilots, you know, which is their acrobatic team that goes around. And she got up and started talking about it. And the the biggest takeaway that I came from out of it with was that she said there's nothing of significance that ever can happen in your life that you accomplish alone. Even even if it's, uh, you know, you're by yourself when you kill your first, you know, Boone and Crockett buck or it's uh you know you get your first hole in one no matter what it is she kept talking about there's always people that have positioned you or helped you get to the certain point that's helped uh create that experience and from someone who's a fighter pilot thinking about you know she's in the air by herself in a plane in combat or in uh in different drills for uh, exhibition for for air shows and stuff it's pretty cool to hear somebody like that acknowledge the people around her just as important as the task that she does. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of takeaways that we can add for our life in that, but, um, but really cool opportunity. I didn't get anything done on the farm this week and, um, actually had a pretty bad flare up with my back again. So I'm, I was grounded all weekend and not able to do anything, but, um, had a pretty good, good week. We'll, uh, we'll get tackling on the farm stuff this week. So
0: you got to go for a ride in a race car though didn't you? that, that might be where your back went bad as you was probably <laughs> white knuckling the, the door panel or something next to you holding on and you tensed up and that's when your back went out
1: no it was before that I was I was a little nervous that once they got me in that that they uh a couple of the car drivers flew in on Wednesday and they had all of the Corvette pace vehicles out on the track so they took us laps on the track around I was in a I think a 2019 uh C7 uh Corvette so one of the Penske IndyCar drivers Sean McLaughlin, uh took me around and it wasn't so much you know these cars are so smooth and you know they run in the IndyCar they run 240 miles an hour around the track and he was running 140, so 100 miles an hour slower than what he normally wow. rides. But it's so smooth. I mean, you can't, you don't feel bumps or, you know, there's not potholes like the roads up in Illinois. But <laughs> uh, the thing that was a little, because you're sitting in the passenger seat and when they come up out of the turns, they come right up to the wall and you're looking right out the door jam of the vehicle and the wall is literally like three inches away. That's, that's the that's the pucker factor in the whole thing not running 140 down the back straightaway, but yeah it was a cool experience
0: um but had a really good week well i guess i'm getting old because i don't want to ever go 140. i don't even want to go 100 anymore <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it's just a sign that i'm over the hill well um i i do know for a fact
1: that our our new duramaxes from victory chevrolet will not go over 100 miles an hour um so Chris Yates I need a solution for that just just saying
0: huh. <laughs> yeah well I, I can say that I haven't tested that so yeah I've been, uh, 90, I've been over 90 a couple of times but I haven't hit 100. So. yeah
1: I uh I snuck it up there just to see because something was with my last truck and it went a little bit faster. Uh, Austin uh, Razor and I found that out when we were chasing, trying to stay ahead of that tornado out of Western Kentucky last year. Coming back from Guthrie for, for that speaking engagement we were at, and we were running good there. But uh, but this one, this one doesn't quite uh, get get quite as fast. It uh, 100 mile an hour is all it'll do. So Chris Yates at Victory Chevrolet. I know I got to turn this thing back in in a year, but I don't know. I don't think we're allowed to re-chip them or reprogram them before we turn them back in and keep that warranty, I don't think.
0: <laughs> well, I don't think I need to go 100 anyway, so I'll be fine. <laughs> All right. Well, um,
1: we got a good segment. I don't want to spend too much time. Uh, we got a good segment that we want to talk about with um, uh, the properties that you uh, visited this year. You're, um, and uh, let's let's take a quick minute and hear from our uh, primary sponsor, Osio Gear.
0: Osseo Gear introduces a premium line of bow hunting gear that is unmatched. Pairing nature's finest camouflage with the best technological innovations, Osseo Gear brings whitetail bow hunters the gear they need to be the best at their craft. The unique camouflage mimics the intricate feather pattern of North America's greatest predatorial creatures. Designed for invisibility, built for comfort, and engineered for function. Visit osseogear.com. That's A S I O dot to start shopping. Osseo Gear, prepare to be invisible.
1: All right, Don. Well, we said last week that we were going to talk about the top consulting properties um, that you visited this year. Um, I was most excited about this, and i I think you're gonna almost make it down as the top four in a countdown, and the the top one's gonna be last. So I've been looking yep. forward to this all week. So uh, if you guys like this, leave a comment down below. And uh, I think some people are gonna probably be surprised at uh, what's not on this not on this list.
0: Yeah, you know, I should probably start by saying uh, since December first through the winter months, um, I looked at 90-some properties for, uh, I think I had 78 clients, and some of those clients had multiple properties for the reason there's more uh, properties than clients, and uh, I think I was in 15 states. I did uh, four new states this year that I never consulted in before. That would have been Georgia, Nebraska, South Carolina, and North Carolina, and uh, So, I mean, I was all over the place. And and when I'm picking out these top properties, well, well, first of all, anytime I go consult on a property, I've got one goal uh, for that client, uh, for myself and the client, I should say. Um, And that is that I want that client to be able to have a shooting opportunity at the best buck on his property every single year. At the same time, I want to help him increase or improve what that top end buck is. Um, And I also want him shooting the best bucks in his neighborhood, you know, say for a mile or two radius around his property. I want him consistently having an opportunity to shoot the biggest bucks in that that neighborhood. Um, So as I lay out these properties, um, you know, you're, you're gonna, think that, you know, well, he's going to pick properties from states like Iowa that have giant bucks or, or Kansas or Ohio or whatever. Well, those are three states that are not going to be on the list. And and I consulted every one of them states on multiple properties and some really, really good properties. In fact, I, I, I went down my list of of all my clients and the properties I looked at to pick out these four. So, so what's the criteria? Um, How did I come up with these four? Well, I'm looking at a property that I think the the, the client can easily and, and right out of the gate, he can easily start shooting the biggest bucks in his neighborhood. Uh, these are properties with great layout. They've got great access. Um, a lot of them already have great bedding cover. Um, they have a food plot program, although a lot of times uh, it needs to be expanded or improved on a little bit. Mm-hmm. But there are properties that lay out fantastic. But also a big part of it is what lays around it. You know, I t- say all the time when you're looking to buy a property, you need to look beyond the property boundary um, because you can change what's on it on the property you buy. I mean, if you need food, you plant more food. If right. You need cover, you plant more cover. But you can't influence across the property line too much. So what's there, you're pretty much stuck with. And I, I think as we go through these, that's going to become really evident. Um, so, I'm going to go down my list. I'm going to start with the, the number four best property or the fourth best property that, in, in my opinion, that I've seen this winter.
1: I feel and like I, I need to have a sound effect or something that says the number four. Uh, I guess I should have prepared a little bit better for you.
0: Yeah, doesn't uh, ESPN or something have a, a countdown so like that? Yeah,
1: something. No, we're yeah. not that professional. No. <laughs>
0: Well, I've got some notes in front of me that I'm going to refer to because, uh, you know, I don't want to leave anything off and and I want the listener to, to get a good idea of of what a good property has. And uh, the first or the number four property is one in Wisconsin. Um, It was a 240 acre parcel. Um, What makes it great is that, first of all, it has access from four directions. Um, Rare. The, there's road on two sides, but there's also access from two, the other two directions as well, and, and that that's huge because uh, it, it just allows that landowner to to come in from from any direction based on the wind.
1: It's not easy um, to
0: find, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's very rare. Um, it, it already has a it's one of the biggest blocks of cover in that area. There's a lot of ag around this property but this property has probably of the 240 acres, I'm gonna say over 160, probably 180 acres of that property is cover already. Wow. And it's very diverse cover. Um, The the wooded uh, cover, there's probably about approximately 100 acres of woods, but it's got a real thick understory. Uh, There's a lot of second growth, um, regeneration areas that have been logged in the past, Uh, You know, really thick with briars and such like that. But there's also some some mature trees as well scattered throughout that. Um, But there's also 80 acres of CRP, and and that CRP has, uh, you know, the the taller native grasses. It also, part of that, maybe I'm going to say 10 to 15 acres uh, of that is a tree planting, a CRP tree planting that had been done several years ago. So these trees today are probably like 15, 20 feet tall, really thick, Uh, just adds diversity to the bedding cover. So this property has already got, is the largest tract of of bedding cover in the whole area. Um, It's got a road on two sides, access from four directions. Um, It's already got a good food plot program, but one that needs to definitely be expanded. Um, just has a lot going for it. There's only one negative on this farm and that one negative is what bumps it down to the fourth place spot. Otherwise it would probably rank higher. And that negative is that there is one part of the the property boundary where there's some hunting pressure and people sitting the fence. Now we're gonna take care of that. Um, The client is gonna put a fence down that side of the property. Uh, and he doesn't even have to go the entire way down that side of the property. And it's not the neighbor that's actually doing the hunting, but the neighbor allows people to hunt. And those people, there's very little cover on that side of the fence, um, which basically forces that, that neighboring hunting pressure to come right up to the fence. And in the past, they've shot a couple of the better bucks that are on this property, because they're coming out of that end of the woods, going into the ag fields. And there's just a little wooded draw coming out that those deer naturally want to follow. Um, but a, a tall fence across that little section is going to eliminate that problem. It's just going to
1: divert them. It doesn't keep them from leaving the property. It's just going to divert them to not come out where that wooded draw is, where those people set the
0: property line won't get a shot. Right. And uh, uh, a couple of other things that I suggested on this visit was uh the crp grass um, was i'll call it fair it it wasn't terrible Uh, it could be much better so uh, they're gonna and they probably already have done this burn that field off this spring Mm -hmm. and and then come in and immediately uh, drill in real world switchgrass to give it some more height um, to create better better bedding cover Uh, the food plot program they've already got a, a a fairly good food plot program on the farm. Um, We're gonna move one plot to a different location, um, but we're gonna expand the size of some of the plots. Um, I'm a big fan of fewer but bigger plots, and that's what we're gonna do here. We're gonna have, we're gonna provide enough food, and and there's enough acreage there to do this. We're gonna provide enough food to get those deer through the entire winter to spring. Mm And uh, the plan is if the plots that, that I've laid out aren't big enough, there's room to expand them. We're just gonna keep expanding until they are big enough to get that, uh, those deer um, through the winter. But it, it's a fantastic property. Um, there is absolutely no reason why this client, I almost immediately really, because he's already got the bedding cover. Um, he's doing a lot of things right. And uh, he just was losing some of his bucks to that neighbor And with the fence and everything else that that we're going to be doing, he he should easily be shooting the biggest bucks in that neighborhood every single year. Got it. Yep. All right. Moving down the list, the uh, number three property. And uh, I had to think long and hard on three and two because uh, I almost flip-flopped them. But uh, I I just decided to go with the number three property is 80 acres in Minnesota. Smaller track. uh, It's a smaller track. It's almost a suburban setting. It's uh, Mm. not too far outside of the twin cities. Um, Mm -hmm. Just a lot of, uh, you know, houses with small acreage, you know, maybe three to five, maybe 10 acres each. Um, But this 80 acre track, it also has roads on two sides to provide access from those directions but it would not be hard at all to access from those directions down the property line and hunt other winds. Um, So you almost, you don't actually have access from four directions, but you kind of do. One of the, it it basically has houses and yards button up almost every place around the two sides that don't have the road. But in one, in the back corner, there is a giant swamp. When I say giant, this swamp has gotta be, Oh, I bet it's uh, it's over 150 acres probably. I mean, it's wow. probably twice as big as this 80 acre property, but a giant swamp um, that I just can't see anybody penetrating. Now across the swamp, there's some wooded cover where I'm sure there's some hunting pressure, but this swamp is kind of a buffer between, in other words, it's gonna be almost impossible for somebody to set the fence line on this farm. Um, let's see. Uh, the topography, there's some great topography. It's not a flat 80. I mean, there's some rolling hills. And what's really good about that on this farm is, is that, uh, you know, we can have a substantial food plot program and those deer can all be hidden from the road. They can never, they can be put in such in an area where it's never seen from the road. Um, there could be traffic up and down those roads all day long and never see a deer and never know how good that property is. You know, they're driving right, right along. Um currently, the property had done on the wooded there's almost a a chunk of wooded cover on each end of, of the eighty that kind of connects uh, with a like a long, narrow strip of cover. Um, and, and it had been in cattle pasture, and, mm-hmm. and that that strip was kind of a connecting piece where they had a fence where the cattle would run back and forth. Well,, um, They've agreed to take the cattle off at least off of at least half of the farm for this year. Um, I'm hoping they, this client follows the plan to a T because I, I'm not 100% sure he realizes the opportunity that he's got. Um, I, I think he's got uh, fantastic intentions. I think he'll do most of the plan, but uh, he's going to look long and hard before he finds a better opportunity than the one he's sitting on right now. Um, and it's only 80 acres, but man, it's ever situated good. It's the kind of 80 that if it was in my neck of the woods, I'd be trying to buy it. Um,
1: well, it just sounds like a, a little uh, tucked-in piece of structure with bedding cover that no one can really pressure it. You know, you're either backed up against houses or that swamp, and you know, mm-hmm. it's that. That's just such a such a vital part of every part of our program.
0: Um, if you can, if you can be where nobody else is at, the mature buck is going to be there. All right. Um, I, I hope the client follows this plan to the T because I mean, he's sitting on something special and, uh, he's got some other, um, interests that are going to, you know, fall in um, in the priority list somewhere. And, uh, if deer hunting is at the top of his list, he's got the opportunity to shoot good bucks every single year. Uh, the number two property um, is a 320 acre piece in Illinois.
1: Mm-hmm. We talked
0: about this property back in December, I think it was, mm-hmm. it was, it, it was December, or January, um, right after I was on it, because I made a post, I, th- I think, on my social media about I was on a, a property that ought to produce Booners every year. And that, that comes in at my, my second best property the entire year. Um, What makes it so great is is that it's isolation. It's 320 acres. There's a lot of ag on that 320, but uh, there's a lot of CRP as well and also some some wooded cover. Um, But it's almost totally surrounded by ag fields. It also has road on two sides, um, but the landowner or the client, he has access to basically come in from any direction as well. So, That's a common theme through all four of these properties is access, access from about any direction. So no matter what the wind is, he can hunt it. Um, Basically uh, the thing I seen on this property was that uh, it had been micromanaged a little bit too heavily. Mm -hmm. Um, The the client had probably spent plenty of time on the internet and then complicated things more than they needed to be. And I came in and simplified it, you know, and, and uh, this is a client that I think gets it and in fact it it wasn't hunting season was still open um, when I was there on, the, on this property and it wasn't but about a week later he shot a booner mm-hmm. after I was there within two weeks or so after me being there he shot a giant um, I think it's around 190 inches uh, but, but he should be able to shoot a buck over 170 on this farm just about every year it, it's isolated it's just it's got everything that he needs to, to kill really good deer. Mm. The last, the number one property, drum roll, please. Mm-hmm. Um, of all places, it's in Indiana. And really? Northern, Northern Indiana at that. But I'm telling you what, this is a honey hole. Um, it, it's only 110 acres. Um, but here's what makes it so great there's access from three different directions. The fourth direction is a large no-hunting sanctuary um, owned by, I don't know if it's owned by the state or a city or some government entity owns this big no-hunting sanctuary. And I'll tell you, when I was on this property, I've never seen deer like this. These deer were like rabbits. They were just everywhere. There's four or five over here, six or eight over there. And they they, weren't like they were just taking off running. These were city deer. And they weren't, Half afraid of people. I mean, they were just kind of going in circles as we walked the property, just kind of avoiding us, deer everywhere. And, uh, you, you know, you're going to be able to, or the client's going to be able to access this property from three different ways and uh, hunt these deer. And what we're going to do here is we're going to blur that line. Right now, there's a pretty defined line between the no hunting sanctuary and where hunting can be done. And I, and I've, Come to that conclusion based on the the tree stands that I'd seen on this, and the client just bought this property, just bought it, hasn't even hunted it yet, um, just closed on it, and uh, so I, I was looking at how it had been hunted in the past as I walked the farm. You know, and I seen tree stands everywhere. Um, the whoever had been hunting it basically just, uh, you know, the, the, they didn't follow the the idea of having a sanctuary, or I don't even think they played the wind really. I think they just stuck stands right. ever possibly could we're going to totally redo how it's been hunted in the past and, and we're going to blur that line between that sanctuary on one side and where the hunting is on the other we want those deer to feel comfortable all the way through we want them to think of this property as part of that sanctuary so on our end we're going to put food here's, here's something we're going to do that I think a lot of people make a mistake when they have a situation like this and they've got a big no hunting sanctuary right next to them. What do they do? They want to go in and they want to put food right next to the, to the sanctuary to pull them deer out. Well, we're doing just the opposite and I've seen it work like a charm on more than 1 property. We're taking that food and we're putting it as far away from that. No hunting sanctuary as possible we're going to draw them deer through the entire property that can be hunted through my client's property clear to the other end to feed. And we're going to get them going back and forth. Um, you know, otherwise those deer could just sit in that sanctuary till dark and then move 50 yards and they're out in the food. Now we want them to have to move hundreds of yards out to that food. And uh, the, uh, the there's a couple of big ag fields on this farm right now probably half of this 110 acres is in ag fields, maybe more, but this client bought this to hunt deer. And he says he doesn't care about the ag. He doesn't care about the income. This is 100% a big buck factory. And he says, you tell me what I need to do to make it the best it can possibly be. And so we're gonna take a lot of that, uh, that open ag area. And part of it's gonna be food for sure, uh, strategically located but we're also going to plant a lot of switchgrass and miscanthus. We're going to put a lot of miscanthus through that switchgrass to create structure. Um, we're going to create some pinch points. So as those deer move out of that already established sanctuary towards the food on the other end, we're going to pinch them down in a couple of spots, uh, where we can kill Which them. Should going be, back towards the food.
1: It should be awesome if he can access it from three sides. Cause then that pinch, he should be able to hunt with different winds. increasing the chances you know different conditions they can hunt so
0: well and and, you know the the big takeaway here for the listener should be that uh, what makes this property so good is not what's on that property it's what's next to it what's outside the boundary of that property Mm -hmm. that's what makes it really special now it lays out good anyway with all the different access points but when you throw that big no hunting sanctuary right next to that great layout Uh, then you got it made and, uh, that neighboring hunting pressure around this property is not going to be an issue. Um, one side, believe it or not, is an interstate highway. Um, which is, I I think it's a great thing because, uh, you you can slip right down the ditch of that interstate. Uh, and hunt that entire side, you know, keeping the wind and even the the road noise is going to cover a lot of your noise. Uh, to slip into some stands. Um, just hands down, the, I, I knew which property was going to be number one. It was two through four that I had to work in my mind and decide what order I was going to put them in. But I knew out, out of the gate which one was going to be number one. Um, and I think this client is going to do exactly um, follow that plan to the letter.
1: Yeah. And, and you look at your top four that you came up with, two of them are big tracks, two of them are smaller tracks. But the takeaways from all of these are access from different directions and what's outside of it, you're protected. Your your square on the checkerboard is definitely different from everywhere else on the board. And, um, yeah, that's, that, that's what makes a good property a special property when you have access and, and uh, not pressure around you.
0: Right. And, you know, I should probably throw out of those 90-some properties I looked at, there was a lot of other really good properties. Um, These are just the four that stood out in my mind. And to be honest, three of those um, I I looked at in the last month. So uh, it might be that they were fresh in my mind. I don't know. But uh, the Illinois property from early in the year stood out to me. But these others were all here in the last month. I don't buy it. You remember a property that you walked in 1982 (laughs) i don't know how you do it but you remember every one of them like i've never seen i do remember properties no doubt about it and but there was a lot of good ones
1: right well that was fun i I enjoyed that so uh i think people will be shocked that iowa and ohio and kansas aren't on there but uh again it's more about the property itself not the area that you're in there's good hunting properties that's uh that's available in every every area so all right. Well, with that, um, we're going to play the Lester's feet, uh, raffle commercial here. And uh, I got a couple updates to give after that.
2: The Lester's feet foundation is a 100% volunteer nonprofit organization whose sole mission is to help families with sick children. The impact on families who have children with life altering illnesses can be devastating and often requires one or both parents to be away from work. Through our fundraising efforts and the help of our generous donors, Lester's Feet works with families to help alleviate the financial burdens associated with caring for their children through such a challenging time. 100% of donations and fundraising profits go directly to the families we are supporting. We are excited to announce that Solid Rock Chapel in Sullivan, Illinois is supporting our foundation by hosting a huge raffle with $150,000 worth of prizes, including a new Chevy truck, a John Deere tractor, a material kit to a post-frame building, and much more. The drawing will be on July 4th, 2022. So please visit us at www.LestersFeetFoundation.org to purchase your raffle tickets and learn more about our organization.
1: All right, well, um, the raffle is going really well. Um, I honestly don't know how many tickets we've sold, but it's a lot, um, but not near enough of what we want to get done with this ministry. Um, the the cool thing that is honestly a little bit overwhelming for the board is that we are now on a couple databases that social workers at hospitals use we didn't put ourselves on there but i guess the more networked we get and the more people we help you know we've helped i think over 60 65 families already um and uh we we're now on these websites where people can call and and uh try to get connected so uh it's a blessing but it's also a lot more people that we're uh having to deal with and help um but um it's, it's just, uh, God just continues to open so many doors, and um, um, I, I really, really appreciate the support that everyone's been doing. Uh, the tickets can be purchased. Uh, you can go to lestersfeetfoundation.org, and uh, if you're interested in buying tickets and not going through the website, I'm going to get a pen handy. I'm going to give you an address you can mail a check to but um you know most of the money that we distribute back out to families comes from this raffle so when people like chris yates and brian Kraft from victory chevrolet midwest land group they understood that that's why they gave us the truck and other donors have stepped up and uh, put a lot of packages together so that we can get the most that we can that all of this money goes back out to families Um, no overhead costs come out of it so Um, if you want to mail in a check especially all those folks that are listening on m tech right now you need to make your check out to solid rock chapel so even though it's a lester's feet raffle solid rock chapel is hosting the raffle on our behalf and then you need to write your name address and i have to have a phone number if i don't have a phone number there's no way i can call you and tell you if you win won something So your name, address, and phone number just on a sticky note or a piece of paper inside, and then you can mail that check and that piece of paper to Lester's Feet Foundation, P.O. Box 250, Dry Ridge, Kentucky 41035. That's Lester's Feet Foundation, P.O. Box 250, Dry Ridge, Kentucky 41035. Um, you know the the uh, updates that we've been doing on our Facebook page and on the website. Um, you guys just have to know that when we call and we talk to these families, um, it it almost feels like their world is coming to an end. I don't know a much worse feeling than watching or learning that your child is sick. Um, I think every parent out there would rather be sick than have their child sick. But not only are we helping these families financially, that way they can focus on what they need to, just the amount of um, when we tell them our story and about how all of you listeners are sending in this money or participating in the rifle, it gives them a warm comfort to know there's a lot of people that believe in God and the power of prayer that are behind them. And, uh, I'll be honest with you. I think that means just as much as the financial help that we provide to these families while they're not able to work, taking care of their kid.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we've definitely been a blessing, but, uh, you know, the, the, the listener is really the one responsible. Well, you're, you're doing 90% of the legwork Terry, uh, on this end, but, uh, you know, we couldn't do it without the, the folks that are supporting the, the, fundraising
1: you know the board the board really steps up and and the amount of time that we take to to do this is is pretty small um but we're simply connecting the dots from a lot of people who want to do a good thing they want to help but i think a lot of people are just so jaded about where they give money to help knowing that it's going to go to the right place or the right cause versus paying some guy's salary or their expenses to travel to conventions and stuff like that you know we're 100 percent volunteer it's actually in the bylaws that as long as this uh, foundation is named after my grandfather no one can take money from this as a salary or compensation it was really important for us to keep it to where all of this money goes to families so um, we're connecting the dots. I know a lot of people want to thank or, or lift us up on a pedestal, but it's all of these listeners. So if if you can do something to help us, please tell your neighbors, tell your friends, tell your coworkers about this raffle and uh, visit our website. Everything's on there. Um, we did have to automate a, 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 a new phone number because the number of calls that we're getting from uh, social workers and different people looking for help. Um, They're coming during business hours, (laughs) to be honest with you, when all of us are at work. So uh, we did have to change that strategy a little bit. But please, please share the raffle and let us know if you uh, have a family in your community. The core of all these families that we're help are still word of mouth uh, from the listeners that are donating the money. And that's what's most special about for me. If you listen to many of our podcasts, you know that minimizing human intrusion is the key to our success. Don Higgins and I have been utilizing the Quiet Cat bike for many years now. As shed season is here, turkey season is not far away. There's no better choice to navigate around your property than a Quiet Cat bike. Go visit Quiet Cat and use the word Higgins to get a free trailer with any Quiet Cat electric bike purchase. All right. Well, with that, let's move on to our first question of the week if you're you're ready.
0: I'm ready. All right. All right, our first question comes from Josh from Kansas. Uh, Josh says, Don, do you think that running feeders during the fawn drop period is detrimental to the deer herd regarding predators? Coyotes and bobcats learn the patterns of deer, and we know that they know feed sites are going to be hot spots for preying activity. Are does smart enough to keep fawns away from feeders until they are big enough to have a chance for escape? Or should we not be feeding during the month of June during the peak fawn drop? Hate to miss such a vital time for extra nutrition getting into the herd. Best regards, Josh. Ah, well, Josh, that's a great question, but I I don't think uh, the does are are bringing those fawns to the feeding area. And in fact, you know, um, God knew what he was doing. He created these creatures. I've said it many times and he, he set them up for survival. In fact, you know when a doe has twins, those twins won't be together. Never, almost never will they be together. Uh, She will separate those fawns and uh, they may be a hundred yards apart or so. And that just ensures that if predators find one, the the odds are a lot better the other one survives. So um, I think you can go right ahead and feed during the the fawn drop period of late May and through June and uh, be fine. but it, it does show your thinking and uh you know I, I like the question but I think I just go right on feeding
1: I think that the uh, benefits of feeding during that peak uh season where there's a lot of stress on the dough trying to get lactation up and keeping your herd health up is much more of a plus than the negative of possibly losing a fawn or two that's my opinion anyway
0: I agree 100%, Terry. Um, it's going to be very, very minimal. It's going to be rare to lose a fawn because of supplemental feeding uh, due to predators. Okay.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to share the second question of the night.
0: That didn't take long. Nope. So the next question comes from Mark Neelitz. Hope I said your name right, Mark, from Rudolph, Wisconsin. Uh, Mark says, hi, Don and Terry. I have learned so much from listening to you both and and live that you, I must, he must have meant love and love that you openly share your faith in God. I wish we had more of that today. My question is regarding bedding areas and sanctuaries. I have started, started having my property logged off and I have marked off a couple areas to leave as bedding sanctuary, the smallest being about an acre and the largest about five acres. I was thinking about planting evergreen trees around the perimeter to use as a site block and somewhat wind block, and was thinking of also putting clumps in the clear cut for the deer to use to bed near or under for thermal cover when we get those cold winters here in Wisconsin. What are your thoughts on this? Anything else that you may have planted or that I could plant to better entice deer to use these? Thank you, and keep up the good work. I have already bought my raffle tickets and plan to buy more. Well, we Thank certainly you. appreciate your support there, Mark, on the Lester's feet. Um, Mark, the reason I picked your question for use is, is uh, I wanted to point out a couple of things. First of all, I think you're, you're going about your whole sanctuary situation all wrong. Instead of having two small sanctuaries, as you described, why not have the entire woods a sanctuary? That's exactly what I would do. Um, A deer is going to have a hard time recognizing when he's in that one-acre sanctuary that you just described, or even that five-acre sanctuary. Um, The bigger it is, the easier it's going to be for the deer to figure it out and relate to it from then on. Um, The other thing, uh, the other reason that I picked your question was you mentioned something about removing the tops, the tops of those trees that have been logged. You don't want to remove those. Just, Just let them lay wherever the the loggers leave them and that's where you should just leave them. Uh, the deer will bed around those. Uh, they'll provide ground cover You know, immediately. Um, they actually, it will help the regeneration because there's a lot of plant species that the deer may browse heavy, for instance, white oaks. Um, well, there's a lot of deer. There's very little white oak regeneration because those young white oaks grow so slow that by the time they get any growth on them, the deer have already browsed them off. But when you've got those fallen tree tops, you know, a young oak can, can start growing in there and get a chance to establish without getting browsed off. So those tree tops provide a lot of benefit and I wouldn't remove a single one of them. I just let them lay where they are. So, you know, my two suggestions for you is, is one, make the entire woods a sanctuary, not just a couple little areas. And number two is leave those tops alone and if you do that you can get it all done you know basically as soon as the loggers are done it's pretty much done although uh, you might also go in there once the loggers are done and do a heavy TSI cut or timber stand improvement Uh, whatever trees are remaining uh, cut out the ones that are never going to have value for timber or wildlife just to allow more sunlight to come in and hit the ground and uh, that's another way you could improve that situation
1: so follow-up question for you on that Don if is is having multiple smaller bedding areas similar to having smaller micro plots you're just why give a deer a choice versus one big block that we can hunt as one big block of sanctuary versus them being on different parts and and not even being able to control it as sanctuary if that
0: makes sense i think the big thing is that uh, the deer just have a hard time um figuring out when they're in the sanctuary if it's only an acre in size or even five acres how do they know how do they know yeah, crossed mean, the magic line?
1: it's kind of hard to with the information we have to really understand what Mark's asking but if there's more woods here other than the five acres and the one acre that he's talking about what's he doing with all that other woods because if he's in there tromping around that other section of woods he just ruined his sanctuary right so we don't we don't know what he's doing so uh, we hope that we did our best by answering those questions he did ask a question about putting evergreen trees around the perimeter I don't know if you want to touch on that or not if that's good bad or ugly or um, depends
0: I I think he meant and again we're just trying to read into the question I think he meant per, uh, evergreen trees around the perimeter of those sanctuary areas uh, maybe he meant the whole property I don't know but uh you know, there's been situations uh, here on my farm, even, where um, a- after an aggressive TSI or timber harvest was done, I went in with like potted oak trees and planted those amongst those fallen tree tops um, to regenerate, to get to better tree species growing where there was a lot of poor species before. And, uh, you know, I like uh, to use oak species that hold their leaves in the winter. I think uh, everybody gets hung up on conifers, which definitely have their place, but those oak trees such as uh, shingle oaks, pin oaks, um, even swamp white to some degree, will hold their leaves really late into the winter and provide a a good bit of cover that way as well. And in some cases, just as much, if not more, um, than a conifer will. Um, Also, red cedars are, are really good because you go and you plant a young pine and a deer will eat those pines and and eat them right off and ruin them where a red cedar they they'll leave those alone uh they'll rub them for sure but uh even if they rub them the tree has a chance to grow out of it where a white pine uh you know once it gets rubbed hard it's pretty much ruined so uh red cedars and oaks uh, i like to plant in those areas that have been logged heavy
1: okay All right, well, thanks for that question. Um, I'm gonna share my screen for the third question of the night.
0: Okay, the third question comes from Justin Rice uh, from Poignette, Wisconsin. He says, Dear Don and Terry, at what point in your management of your properties did you guys start seeing the increase of upper age class bucks? Were they always around your properties or did you guys notice your properties influencing the upper age class bucks in your area? Thanks. Keep up with a great podcast and let's go, Brandon. Um, Well, Justin, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that my property influences the number of mature bucks in my area. Um, I don't know what uh, my neighbors would think about this answer, but, uh, There is no doubt whatsoever that my efforts on my farm are helping people for about a mile in every direction around me. And uh, and I know that because a lot of the bucks that live here um, that I'm trying to get to older age classes get killed. Uh, To be just brutally honest, they get killed on surrounding properties a mile or so away. Uh, So I have absolutely no doubt that that I'm affecting my neighbors hunting. Um, and, And I've got some neighbors that are on board Um, with quality deer management, Um, not neighbors that butt right up to me, but neighbors in my neighborhood that are doing it. I I don't think there's anybody doing it to the degree that I am. I I think I'm letting bucks go that nobody else is going to let go. I think I'm providing more food than anybody else is going to provide. I think I'm taking ag ground out of production to provide cover in the form of uh, CRP fields that nobody else in my neighborhood is going to do. And, and that's not a knock on them whatsoever. They've got uh, different priorities with their ground and that, that's absolutely fine. I don't have an issue with that whatsoever, but without a doubt, I, I'm affecting my neighbors. At what point did, did uh, I, I start to see a, an improvement in the, the um, production of older age class bucks, bigger bucks? I, I would say it was fairly quick. Um, you, if you provide a safe place and then let those deer get some age on them, it doesn't take long. I would say within five to seven years, I, I was seeing better bucks on this farm when I started. Um, and to be honest, it, it it kind of hit a peak there about 2017 to 2020 when I shot uh, um, Smokey and Mel on my farm. It, it, it seems to be on a downward trend right now, just simply because a lot of the better younger bucks um, that I had got shot. Um, I think a lot of that's due to the state regulations when they allowed the use of a crossbow and, and everybody started uh, you know, putting a lot more effort in during the archery season. Um, a lot of those bucks got killed during the regular firearm season, I know, but uh, I, I just think overall the, the deer herd in my general area is trending downward Um, from what it was i don't have a good buck on my property to hunt this year um that i know of unless one of them blows up that that i'm not expecting uh this summer um but but i've definitely had an impact on my neighborhood for sure good
2: answer
1: i just here here's the thing Uh, depending on your your neighborhood it's, it's a little bit easier for you to judge that out in big ag country than it is with me with smaller properties, with connecting woods going all over the place. But I'll answer his question a different way. When I started leaving my property alone, providing as much cover and food as I could and stayed out until it was time to hunt the right conditions. Since I started doing that, I've had a shot on small acreages of Buck's, five, six or older. So my area is different than Illinois. I'm not going to have, you know, there's big bucks in Kentucky. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I don't think there's as many big bucks as there are up there because of some, you know, a lot of other conditions that we're talking about. But I've created an environment with lack of pressure and food and cover to where there's always a mature buck here. Um, Whether I decide to shoot him or not, that's a different story. Um, But you have to tackle the age structure before you worry about the antler size. If you don't, if you don't understand the age structure and keeping a mature buck, your chances of having a big rack, a huge, you know, buck is much smaller. And if it is, you're going after that one, 2% that's going to be a giant killing him at three, um, like we've talked about so many times on the, on the podcast. So I know I didn't answer the question the way he asked it, but even on small properties here in Kentucky with connecting woods up and around every holler um, with people hunting it, if you're careful about how you do things, you can still hold age structure. And that's that's half the battle.
0: Oh, uh, No doubt about it. That human intrusion uh, is one of the big reasons that my property stands out from properties in this area is because... I just don't go into that property. You know, once it greens up this time of the year, I'm, I'm gone all summer long, all fall, The de- it's left to the deer and they figure it out, but you're, you're never going to hold, I don't even care if you had 500 or a thousand acres, you're going to have deer leaving. You could have 10,000 acres and you're going to have deer leaving. Um, you know, I, I just wish that uh, in a lot of cases that the neighbors would get on board to the same degree that I am, but I just, you know, the, the real frustrating thing for me is it's not the neighbors so much that own the land. It's a neighbor that that does not deer hunt at all, and but they let somebody come in and, and deer hunt. And it's usually those guys that come in, they've got nothing invested. They show up during hunting season. They're not there the rest of the year unless maybe they're out looking for antlers one time or something. But those are the guys that don't own the land that that come in that, that seem to be the ones that are hardest on the resource, and uh, make it way more difficult to get to move these bucks into the older age classes.
1: Yeah, and the, there's a takeaway there that if you are one of those hunters that are getting permission to hunt, it's more than just leaving them a gift card or a thank you note and some summer sausage. It's it's being a good steward of the long term you know, resource of whitetail in that area. If you do, if you are one of those ones, you know, I have permission properties that I'm allowed to hunt on that. I don't, that I don't even pay for, but, um, you know, I take as much pride in that property as I do the one that, that is, that is my wife is the fifth generation on our family farm. So, um, you know, (laughs) it's, it's a pride thing that I want to leave, be a good steward, a good outdoorsman and a good woodsman, no matter what I do, I'm not going in, you know, I've seen people with permission properties that'll go in and, you know, nail nail nails into trees, leave trash everywhere. You know, they just don't care. And, uh, I think that's, I think that's, uh, against kind of what the kind of gentleman side of what our sport
0: needs to have more of. Yeah. And you know, we, I, I don't want to sound like we're picking on these guys that are only hunting on permission because I do a lot of that myself. Um, For a lot of years, that's the only, I didn't have this farm when I was younger. Um, But the thing that that you really hit on, Terry, is stewardship. Um, I I just think this whole sport um, lacks um, good role models in terms of stewardship of the resource. It's, uh, you know, kill them all at any cost, any way you can. And uh, I'll probably get blasted for this on social media like I did uh, by some idiot this week on another topic, um, um, because I'm outspoken on things that I, I think that nobody else is, and and that's stewardship. Um, and how many guys that that are bow hunting today started out hunting small game? Back when I was a kid, everybody first started with small game, and you kind of worked your way up. And, and deer hunting, you you didn't um, you, you didn't start out as a deer hunter when you were five years old. It just didn't work that way. Well, we've we've gotten to the point where we've skipped, and it's almost like an apprenticeship. The way uh, Gene Winslow described it to me one time is, uh, you know, when we started, we, it was almost an apprenticeship. You took steps to get to become a deer hunter, and the ultimate level of a deer hunter was the bow hunter. The bow hunter was a guy out there challenging himself with with uh, equipment with limited range. Um, he he was handicapping himself, if you will. Well society in general has tried to make everything faster and quicker and easier and it's happened with the sport of bow hunting and deer hunting um we've done everything we can to make it as easy as we possibly can and in the process we've eliminated that apprenticeship if you will um you got guys out there hanging their stands in the tree that they can't even tell you what kind of tree it is they don't know an oak from a maple let alone a white oak from a red oak and uh yeah, you know, that's the saddest thing I see, and, and I don't care what the neighbor shoots or or somebody hunting on the neighbor. I mean, I do to a degree, but I, I'm not upset about it. I'm not mad because he shot a young buck that I wanted to, to grow older. Right. Um, if he's hunting legal, good for him. You know, I was at that stage, too. I, I mean, there was a time where I was shooting year-and-a-half-old bucks and was darn happy to do it. So, I'm not going to take that away from anyone. It's just that I would like to see more role models in this industry encouraging good stewardship of the resource and when i say the resource i'm talking about the deer herd overall but also you know the woods the the vegetation if you will not just the animals but the vegetation yeah. too the habitat um so I, I got off on a little side and oh, but it's,
1: it's okay it's there. okay and i think i think ultimately you know similar to the, what this question you know kind of implied is you know, we, we got off track really quick on it, but at the end of the day, you and I are more picky and more concerned and more conservative about the properties that we have permission on than we do the ones that we actually own. And, um, I think the pride that we take in that needs to be considered with everybody. And, you know, it's just not going there and run around and do whatever on it. Um, to be respectful of all the people that are around you, everybody's goals are different. But especially that person that's paying the property taxes and giving you permission to hunt, you got to be just as respectful to him and their land as you would if you owned it yourself. So, you know, and if, if somebody doesn't have the opportunity to small game hunt, I know what you're saying for a bigger picture. It's, 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 there's too many guys out here that are self-proclaimed experts that, that get on me about using a or plow after I've grown up on a farm all these years and I've read every article about no-till and I've done no-till and they don't, they don't have any of the background just because they read it on an article. So be, be conscientious of that. And, um, and especially if you have a young child or a kid that you're helping with, it's more than just going out and s- we have elevated blinds, but it's more about teaching, uh, the sport, the deer, the habitat, than it is how to pull a trigger and shoot something, I think, is is where we're going with this. Share the whole story, the whole package, so that we have this resource for generations to come, not just uh, one one head that's hanging on a wall. All right. All right. The last question of the night. you should uh, have
0: that one up on your screen. Uh, the last one comes from Brian Kohler from DeForest, Wisconsin. Had a run of Wisconsin questions this week uh brian says don and terry love the podcast and all the great info you guys put out there my question is about planting real world gen 2 soybeans i'm looking to take the one bag challenge that don talks about my goal with planting the gen 2 soybean is to have them last well into the late season to provide some good hunting in the late season and hold deer on my property through the winter months my girls and i really enjoy shed hunting in the spring Deer density is not real high in the area. For reference, last season, I planted around seven acres of real world products such as Deadly Dozen and Plot Topper and had some great success in holding deer this past winter. The deer hit them hard, but they didn't wipe out all the food. So my question is, do you think planting seven acres of Gen 2 soybeans will provide enough food to hold the deer on my property through the winter months in southern Wisconsin? Keep up the great work with Lester's feet. Well, Brian, uh, if I was in your situation, first of all, I think you're gonna be able to pull in more deer than you realize. Um, on my property, I'm in an area like you described where the deer density is not real high, but I can still have 70 deer on my farm uh, in the winter months. That's the time of the year when I have more deer than any other time period. So. Uh, if I was in your shoes and I had seven acres to plant in food plots, I would plant three acres in Nutri Crave corn, three acres in 2 soybeans, and one acre in Deadly Dozen. And if you do that, you're going to have deer there until the last bit of it's gone. That will tell you that that's the only way to know if you're going to have enough food. Um, But I I can tell you that corn and the soybeans, you're focused on the late season, according to your your question there. Um, That corn and that soybeans is going to be the ticket for the late season. That's what's going to pull them deer in. But what's really critical is, in my opinion, you you know, I I spend a lot of time in Wisconsin every winter on on consulting visits. It's a little bit different than where I'm at in uh, central Illinois. As where I'm at, the crops are usually out by about the 1st of November. And then a lot of that ground gets turned under, Um, not moldboard plowed, but chisel plowed, and uh, which eliminates a a lot of food sources. In Wisconsin, I don't see that fall tillage going on like we have it here. I I see a lot more crops standing later in in your area than what I have. And, And that's why I think it's so critical that you're using Nutri Crave corn and Gen 2 soybeans. And I know this is gonna sound like a sales pitch and I apologize for that, but if there was something better, I'd be planting it on my own farm. What I would challenge you to do is in your three acres of soybeans, do two acres in uh, the Gen 2 and, and one acre in, in something else that you get local and see the difference for yourself. The same way with the Nutri Crave corn, do two acres in Nutri Crave, and one acre and some other corn that you get there local, see the difference for yourself and then decide if it's worth it or not. I would advise you to do it the opposite way and do, uh, you know, just one acre of the Gen 2 and two acres of your local ag beans or whatever. Um, but I'm so confident that the real world beans have and, and the neutral corn have more pulling power that that's what's going to help set your property apart and in the future. I, I think it's going to be a no brainer for you. You're going to see it with your own eyes and you're not even going to have to think twice. You're going to plant all three acres in Nutri-Crave, all three acres in Gen 2. And the, uh, the higher oil content, the, the higher palatability is going to pull those deer to your property and they're going to stay there until that is consumed before they go feed on your neighbors. Um, that's what I would do if I had seven acres in the situation that you described.
1: Yep, good advice. All right, well that's the last question for today since we had that first segment. So uh, what else you want to wrap up with today before we cut off?
0: Well, I'm just, uh, this week I'm hoping to uh, get on food plots. Um, been a little bit wet around here, the farmers are, are going. but. Uh, we had a little bit of rain a couple of days ago, but they're starting to get back in the fields this afternoon, I noticed. but my plots are, uh, you know, some of them are not well drained and they got some wet spots in them. They need to dry out a little bit more. Um, a lot of those ag fields, as I just mentioned, they get uh, um, worked in the fall, so they dry out a lot quicker in the spring. when When you've got a layer of corn stalks or something on top of the ground, it kind of holds that moisture in. And that's why I'm a little bit behind the farmers, which is fine. It's still plenty early. Um, but i'm hoping to get on that this week how about you terry
1: um say a prayer for my back doctor appointment tomorrow that's going to dictate what else i'm allowed to do the rest of the week so hopefully i'm free and clear and uh, can get uh, i gotta get some fertilizer and lime spread that's my next priority before i do a final disc and um, plant a bunch of nutricrave corn and soybeans you got uh, some Chemicals chemicals are hard to come by people this year. We know it. So uh, that's why it's so important for you to work with your local ag chem rep or uh, contact the bigger companies that you find online, like Ag Chem Solutions out of Indianapolis, and talk to the experts. Tell them what you're doing. They'll tell you what they have available. So um, that's my next hit list. If I can get lime and fertilizer spread this week. Uh, my daughter graduates college on Saturday. Awesome. So, uh, Uh, Saturday will be tied up for me but I'm going to be excited to share that uh, milestone with her but outside of that, that's it, say a prayer for me Monday
0: will do, see you next week everyone God bless take care Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Osceo Camo Farm Real Estate Company 360 Hunting Blinds Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products. Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands. Gingerich Tree Farm, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.